Welcome to the Soapbox Redemption Podcast. The big questions serve with swagger. I'm Andrew and I'll be your host as we embark on this journey together. This episode features a conversation with James Franklin. Dr. James Franklin is a professor of mathematics at the University of New South Wales in Australia and founder of the Sydney School in the Philosophy of Mathematics. He completed his PhD in 1981 at the University of Warwick on algebraic groups Since 1981, he has taught in the School of Mathematics and Statistics at the University of New South Wales. His research areas include the philosophy of mathematics and the formal sciences, the history of probability, Australian Catholic history, the parallel between ethics and mathematics, work for which he received the 2005 Eureka Prize for Research in Ethics, Restraint, the Quantification of Rights in Applied Ethics, and the analysis of extreme risk. He's authored several books, including topics from one we talked about extensively on the podcast entitled An Aristotelian Realist Philosophy of Mathematics. Mathematics as the Science and Quantity of Structure, which was published in 2014. My study of philosophy, I remember coming across the topic of mathematical objects. What are they? Are they just useful fictions, or do they reveal something deeper about reality? How and why is the language of mathematics so incredibly precise and sometimes even predictive of empirical discovery, what Eugene Wigner labeled the unreasonable effectiveness of mathematics? In this podcast, Jim and I discuss his background and academic interests and jump right into the incredible accuracy and even predictiveness of mathematics and how Aristotle's view of mathematics differs from the nominalist and Platonist views. So, is mathematics invented or discovered? If invented and just useful fictions, how is this language so incredibly precise and even prophetic? If discovered, how do we have access to these timeless and prophetic truths? How do they relate to reality? And what does that say about reality? In this podcast, Jim and I discuss these topics, but also how they relate to morality and metaphysics in general and the problems that a traditional materialist and skeptic faces versus a Platonist, and how Aristotle's metaphysics may thread the needle on a just right realism. So please, enjoy the conversation between yours truly and James Franklin. Jim, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for the invitation. Oh, sure. Is it is it Tuesday morning already in Australia? You, you've got a sure, heck of a head start sure. on us here. <laughs> uh, sure, as we say, the, the world can't end today. It's already tomorrow in Australia. Exactly, is. exactly. Yeah, it's only uh, Monday, uh, you know, early evening, late afternoon time frame. Yeah, so um, we're off and going. <laughs> well, hey, you got a head start. But, um, well, well, folks, I'm super excited to have Jim on the podcast today. Um, my listeners know that we love the big questions on this podcast. Topics like metaphysics, morality, and consciousness are always front and center. One topic I've always been fascinated with in my Torah philosophy has been the philosophy of mathematics. And what's been interesting to me with the big questions such as these, um, the more I came across these deep metaphysical questions, the more I was drawn to Aristotle's perspectives. 
And we couldn't have a better guess than Jim to take us through um, these questions and, and how I think Aristotle answers uh, some of these deep questions. So um, on that note, quick bio on Jim. Dr. James Franklin is a professor of mathematics at the University of New South Wales in Australia and founder of the Sydney School in the Philosophy of Mathematics. He completed his PhD in 1981 at the University of Warwick on algebraic groups. Since 1981, he's taught in the School of Mathematics and Statistics at the University of New South Wales. His research areas include the philosophy of mathematics and the formal sciences, the history of probability, Australian Catholic history, the parallel between ethics and mathematics, work for which he received the 2005 Eureka Prize for Research in Ethics, Restraint, the Quantification of Rights in Applied Ethics, and Analysis of Extreme Risks. He's authored several books, including one we'll be talking about in depth, entitled An Aristotelian Realist Philosophy of Mathematics, Mathematics as the Science of Quantity and Structure, which was uh, published in 2014. So Jim, before we get into uh, the topics here, um, and your academic interest, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you developed an affinity for not only mathematics, but uh, philosophy and, and maybe metaphysics? Sure. I uh, turned out to have an ability for mathematics that was just out of the blue. It's like having an ability for sport or something. I wasn't at school especially interested in mathematics, but uh, by the time I got to university, I realised I had a talent in that which I pursued. At the same time, when I went to university as an undergraduate, I was looking for another subject to fill in, and I tried philosophy without knowing much about it. Uh, philosophy, I couldn't see where that fitted into the scheme of things. What, what are the subject matter of philosophy? When I got there, I understood that. I did have a Catholic background, which gives you a certain perspective on realism and ethics, and uh, perhaps uh, a positive view of metaphysical questions. So you're not inclined to dismiss them as matters of language or uh, just agreement or something. So as I uh, pursued those two, I saw parallels, for example, between ethics and mathematics. Uh, ma ma mathematics keeps you sane and, and it, it keeps you pinned down to absolute truth. Uh, there's no yes and no or opinion about mathematics, and it's good to move that across to philosophy, I think. Fantastic. Yeah, I um, I thought we'd talk about both of those topics. Um, and maybe, maybe to set the stage a little bit here, um, as metaphysics and the philosophy of mathematics can get far out <laughs> very mm -hmm. quickly, uh, maybe we start by the, um, well, really the incredible objectivity an out thereness, um, if you will, of mathematical truths. So we have this, you know, not only incredible objectiveness and actuality about mathematical reality, but we also have these this prophetic dimension of, of predictions like Maxwell's equations, predicting electromagnetism, the Dirac equation, predicting antimatter, complex numbers, finding an empirical home in quantum mechanics, the Higgs boson particle being mathematically predicted in, in a way um, so before we get into what the solution is, can you lay out just these ideas of, of, of ontological realism and a realism, and maybe we talk about the prominent views of, of nominalism and Platonism and how, how they kind of address these versus, versus you know, starting to lay out your view? Uh, yeah, sure. Before getting into those uh, higher areas of physics, let's go back to some much simpler things that mathematics tells you about the real world. It's amazing when you learn numbers that you realise that the numbers don't run out, as the mathematicians call it, the axiom of infinity. 
Well, why is that so? Surely it isn't because we've made numbers up. The numbers are really are there for counting. And it's just a fact, well, well beyond our empirical experience, anything we can see, that the numbers just keep going. There's infinitely many of them. And there could be infinitely many things for them to count, though we don't know whether that's true or not. Maybe there's a finite number of electrons, maybe there aren't. The electrons might run out, but the numbers to count them are not going to run out. That's just how mathematics is, and you have to be, uh, you, you have to put up with that, like mm -hmm. it or not. It's not any matter of social construction or anything like that. Uh, another thing that mathematics tells you is that even though you can tile your bathroom floor with uh, exactly similar square tiles or hexagon, hexagonal tiles, you absolutely cannot do that with pentagonal tiles. It's just mathematically impossible. It's a fact about uh, regular shapes and the plane. And it's that, again, tells you you can go out with the tiler and discuss as much as you like and put the tiles down. Mathematics tells you up front what you're going to be able to do in the real world. Now, those are, those are, those, that tells you exactly why you must believe mathematics. You can see it really happening out there. And that's certainly a mystery. Uh, as you say, there are schools of mathematics, uh, schools of philosophy of mathematics like Platonism and nominalism that are trying to explain that. Well, every, every school of mathematics is trying to explain it. Uh, perhaps none, none of them or none of us are doing a really great job, hmm. but it sets the question. Maybe I can put the question in this very simple way. Why is it that in empirical sciences, from physics to biology to ornithology and everything, you have to go out into the wet and conduct experiments and observations to know what's true, but in mathematics... You just sit in the armchair, do the work, and you can be sure it's going to work out there. Hmm. Yeah, that's a great way to phrase the question because, you know, myself as an engineer, I always think when I'm, you know, and even just doing pure mathematics that I'm doing something. And, you know, maybe, maybe this is a great way to talk about mathematical fictionalists or nominalists just saying, hey, well, this is just a language. This is just abstract language, given the beings that we are of, of trying to make sense of patterns. And there really is nothing to this. Is, is that a good way to, to kind of start with maybe someone who takes a skeptical view? James? Yes, sure, sure. Engineering is great as a perspective because it's not only about the truth, it's about design because you've got to work out beforehand what's going to happen and the uh, interactions of the parts you're going to put into place. Uh, a nominalist perspective, so nominalism means from Latin nomina meaning just names. So the nominalist perspective says that mathematics is not about anything, about any aspect of the real world. It's about our language or our thought or how we talk about things. In effect, it says mathematics is only language or only logic. And that perspective doesn't look good when it comes to engineering because mathematics really does seem very contentful. Uh, in the case, of, for example, of the uh, designing your bathroom floor, it tells you what you can do and what you can't do. You have to uh, be, um, you have to, you have to take it that reality is that way, and mathematical reality as well as empirical reality. Mathematical reality tells you something. It tells you it's true in all possible worlds as well as in this world. It tells you what is possible out there. Right. And, and maybe when we shift to, because um, we were, you, you mentioned earlier that how you know, maybe someone like a Platonist or a nominalist maybe 
ask this question is, well, what do we do with these mathematical truths? Some of these things earlier that I mentioned where where math has this prophetic dimension, I think now you have Platonists that take the out there-ness of math to a whole nother, you know, maybe uh, exaggeration. (laughs) Can you maybe comment on how Platonists would would say Platonism is at the far end of, of the spectrum from nominalism. Platonists say that mathematics is certainly about some a true reality out there, but it's not an empirical reality. It's there in another world. So they say that numbers, sets and so on, exist in a non-causal world beyond space and time that we have access to by some kind of intuition. Now, it's certainly true that when you're doing pure mathematics, it can look like that. You do feel you're dealing with things and that the things there are abstract in a very, uh, well, Platonist sense that they're not about this world. But it is too much of an exaggeration because it doesn't tell you how those truths do tell you something about your bathroom floor. Platonism is a reasonable theory if you just keep yourself to the higher pure mathematics, but it's not so good if you start thinking about applied mathematics. And even if you start thinking about the most basic learning of mathematics, like the five-year-old. The five-year-old doesn't seem to be in contact with an abstract world beyond space and time. They're dealing with physical objects and apples and counting. There, must be, there has to be some story about how the mathematical truths they're learning apply to the actual apples. And I think Platonism doesn't have that story. Yeah, and one thing, James, I thought I'd get your perspective on, because I really enjoyed the book by Max Tegmark called The Mathematical Universe, it takes far out to a whole nother level, right? Where you, where, where his, I mean, I'll try to summarize it for you and you can tell me how I did, but the, the reason of the incredible effectiveness of mathematics is because each of these mathematical truths do actually have a home and there's a multiverse of, of things that ultimately everything down is mathematical. And that's the reason why we have access to it. And that's the reason why, um, you know, math is the way it is. And, and maybe, you know, could you comment just maybe on how, how I did yeah, summarizing that? <laughs> that? That's fine. That's fine. Yeah. That's what he says, but uh, mathematics seems to be not true just of a multiverse, but of our universe. Uh, where is that leaving us with the bathroom floor and the, the, the numbers don't run out? Right. We seem to have some, we seem to have truths that really are about our world. Let's, let's take the kind of thing that, a lot of mathematical truths are about uh, ratio. Mm. Uh, so if we were, if you and I were standing next to each other and the, view, the listeners could see us, they'd see that our heights are similar but not exactly and they could estimate that there's a ratio of uh, your height to mine, only approximately, but they could say, oh, it's about, it's about 1.1 to 1, let's say, maybe you're 10% uh, higher than I am. And truths about ratios like the transitivity of betweenness among ratios if uh, a is if the ratio a is more than b and b is more than c then a is more than c that uh, is how it is out there but it's not out right out there it's about that's a an observable truth about our heights mm-hmm. so we need to have a th- philosophy of mathematics that on the one hand, says it's out there, but not too far out there. It's got to be out there, but able to be back here and in the things we observe. Right. 
And, and now maybe we set the stage for your theory and, and dating back to Aristotle. I mean, I, how I see it and why I'm attracted to, to, to your, um, your research and Aristotle's theory is that I think you, you find this common ground between m- maybe this far outness of Platonism where you want realism, but not at the cost of, of total reductionism or fictionalism. And, uh, and I think there's a, there, there's a nice common ground here where you can, you know, kind of rule out the problems of both views. And, and maybe you could help us set the stage of, of what this realism looks like, Jim. That's right. It, you're exactly right. It's, it's a realist theory of mathematics and says mathematics is a science about some real aspects of the world, but it doesn't have the cost of a divorce from reality or a divorce from physical reality because it says that the things mathematics is about are ratios, continuity, flows, numbers, uh, discreteness, partedness, are things that are in the real world and can be seen there and can be measured there. Strange how so many philosophers, math, philosophies and mathematics don't talk about measurement, yeah, which is the main thing, main connection, or original connection between numbers, the mathematical world and the real world. Aristotelian realism says measurement is what it says. It's finding out the mathematical structure or quantitative structure of the real world. Right. Now, let me ask you this here because, you know, I wanted to ask you about the parallels we might draw in in ethics, and I know you're interested in that as well. I had a recent guest, Bill Jaworski, who laid out – Aristotle's hylomorphic view of ethics and how that differs from, you know, moral skeptics and Platonists and, you know, the moral skeptic denying moral ontology and the Platonist putting it in another realm. <laughs> and this sounds familiar here with the Aristotelian, the Aristotelian putting it right in front of us that human beings are this irreducible composite of, of both matter and immaterial form, which makes us the conscious rational animal. And so do you see that, ex- that parallel here with, with Aristotle's mathematical realism? Yeah, you're drawing that very well, that there's various skeptical, um, in effect, nominalist theories of ethics that say, well, we made it all up, or it's uh, customs of tribes evolve over evolutionary time scales. And on the other hand, there are theories that say that, uh, are, are a Platonist that say that, it's uh, about truths, but they're uh, somehow divorced from the real world, or maybe in some cases just commands of God or something like that. The Aristotelian realist about ethics, uh, yeah, it takes a view that ethical truths are about human beings, maybe some other things as well, and that they rest on inherent properties of the human being, so that the human, the dignity of human beings, what makes them uh, a limit of what you can do to them, gives them rights, for example, is yeah, some features of them, perhaps rationality or perhaps something wider, perhaps the whole human composite. So you have to look at what it is, what human beings are actually like and uh, see what moral properties like dignity supervene on those properties. And would you say when we... Um on the mathematical parallel, when we analyze something mathematically, we're, we're, we're doing that, like you said, the, a structural um, analysis as well as an empirical analysis, and they're they're tied together. It's a, it's a it's a different way of of looking at something, but they're ultimately together. Uh, yes, that's right. So, math, uh, physical things have non-mathematical properties like their color, but then they have mathematical properties like their uh, structure, pattern, uh, uh, and uh, symmetry, thing, ratio, things like that, that are uh, something about the relation 
between the parts of them, typically. So structure is about parts. I sometimes say that mathematics, my version of Aristotelian realism is that mathematics is about the uh, structural and quantitative aspects of things, which are, as we've been saying, are real, real, really properties of them, but different kinds of properties to their colour. Uh, now, it's something like that with ethics. So mathematical properties themselves are definitely not ethical, but there are other properties that humans and to some extent animals and ecosystems possibly have that uh, give them a, a moral worth that means that, for example, it's wrong to destroy them. Those sort of properties, when we have to concentrate on them, what is it when you meet another person that you think uh, makes it important for them, for you to act rightly by that person? Well, it's something inherent to them. It's that they have a consciousness, an emotional life, a rationality, uh, an ability to make decisions that you also have. If they weren't like that, if they were robots, but just, uh, just with the kind of voice recognition, it wouldn't be like that. Right. Now, now this is an interesting topic for me. Um, a little, you know, conversation I had in my, in my book with my friend Adam in our book Meta. It seems this this idea of different kinds of ontologies. It seems, and, and Adam is a, is a materialist and atheist, and myself uh, Aristotelian and 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 Christian and Catholic background. It seems um, a lot of materialists I know do not want to even think hylomorphically this idea of different kinds of things. It's, it's just better when there's just matter. And, you know, would you say that that is happening in, in, you know, people tend to think even the hylomorphic view is too spooky for a traditional materialist. They don't want to have that ontology to deal with. Would you say that's, that's happening? Right. Yeah. Is I, that I interesting? Say, yes. Yes. I would say that's happening and it's a very significant thing that's happening. A certain people's interpretation of the metaphysics of physics is that there's nothing there that, that and they don't like kinds of things but they don't even like things they, if you're really into matter it's just a matter of our convention that it's divided into things so according to the aristotelian view roughly speaking the world is uniquely divided into things and sometimes stuffs and those stuffs and things are uniquely divided into species uh, a modern materialist view is inclined to deny all of those and in effect they're only kind things and kinds of things are maybe subatomic particles and waves and so on. Well, that is a view, that is a very alien view to the way we normally think about, well, people or the, the whole of the world. Uh, it's, and it will not fit very well, I think, with any realist ethics. And would you say, Jim, in your, um, you, you, you have an interesting background both in philosophy and mathematics, would you say the pulse, and I've always been interested in this, of most, most mathematicians, is a Platonist one or is it a nominalist one? Is it all across the board, just in your dealings with scientists, <laughs> philosophers, and mathematicians? What, what, where are people? How do they... Up. <laughs> There's yeah. a saying that uh, mathematicians are Platonists on, in, on their work days and then on the weekend when you ask them what it's all about, they turn into formalists or something. <laughs> just say it's uh, all logic or all about manipulating uninterpreted symbols. Uh, you can't get a coherent answer, a philosophical answer from asking philosophical questions to mathematicians because they don't have that mindset. Very few mathematicians think philosophically. Uh, actually, there was a philosopher of mathematics uh, in New Zealand who's Mus Alan Musgrave who said that um, in this context that uh, fish are good at swimming but poor at hydrodynamics. 
That, uh, yeah, so it's uh, mathematicians are good at doing mathematics, but they're not good at knowing what it's about because it's not part of their training to think about that. Right. And, you know, same thing with with scientists. I've seen some th- scientists get involved in philosophy of religion um, and really butcher the deep metaphysical questions because they don't have the training or even the vocabulary to ask the correct questions. Um, I think Lawrence Krauss's universe from nothing, he, he got in a lot of trouble from, from even atheist philosophers of science that just said your whole book was a play on words. We've been asking this timeless question for you know thousands of years and you know, you didn't even ask the question correctly. <laughs> you smuggled yeah, in, that's right. You smuggled in a, uh, you smuggled in potentia that we've always been wondering how did that get there, right? So um, yeah, that's yeah, sure, sure. I, I mean, yeah, that's right. Uh, asking scientists to do philosophy without training is, but like like asking actors to do politics. I mean, it's they just don't have the background. Right. Well, let me ask you this, um, uh, Jim, because these are these are you know how, how would um, I, I guess why. Why, um, why not bite the bullet um, on Platonism? Is it this access? Is it the far outness? And, and were you ever a Platonist before you reached this view? So just tell me about, you know, the, your temptation towards Platonism and or rejection. I mean, what's the biggest thing standing in front of you to embrace yes, that view? There is, there is the classic objection to Platonism is the access problem. If they uh, a causal things out there in a non-physical world. How could you ever know about them? But I can't say I was ever uh, really tempted by Platonism just because the kind of entities it talked about didn't seem um, justified. And not only that, they seemed irrelevant if they were there because even if they are there, I still want to know what it is, what is the numerical structure of physical reality? Why, what is it about, a, say, a climate or climate model that is or isn't correctly modelling the actual climate? There, there's some structural thing there. And quest, questions about uh, Plato's views of sets just don't seem to match that question. They don't seem to be telling you anything about it, whatever the answers to them be. Yeah. Uh, so when I, when I, the notion of modelling or in engineering, designing, uh, it, describing mathematically what you're trying to do, what the structure of your uh, creation is going to be, that's where, well, the rubber hits the road. That's where the mathematics is doing something, telling you about the structure of the real world. And Platonism is just a fantasy that doesn't gel with that. Now, one thing that maybe gets my uh, pl- my temptation towards Platonism that I wanted to get your thought on is, is when you do have these incredible predictive things and, and maybe Aristotelian realism can, can deal with this too, where you have these predictions, the Dirac equation, Maxwell's equations, Higgs boson particle, you know, and then you also have, you know, the, the man who knew infinity, the, like the Natarujan, the, the mathematical geniuses just doing math that finds empirical discovery is that not a little spooky? Yeah, and and how would Aristotle deal with that? Sure, it, it is kind of eerie. It, it is. Uh, it's particularly maybe eerie that, that mathematics can seem to deal with correctly with infinities, of even very mm. high infinities, uh, even though these are not observable in the real world. And that for all we know, the real world might be uh, finite. Well, yes, I, I agree. I agree. That does give you a feeling that there is some truth out there, not only in the real world, but maybe beyond the real world. Uh, 
sure, sure. Uh, no, I, I do agree that there is some temptation to Platonism, especially when you're dealing with and feel you have an absolutely certain grasp of truths that are true really out there. There is, there is a kind of, all right, okay, there is a kind of world of possibilities, shall we say, beyond what is actually realised. The physical world that we deal with and our, with our rather poor perceptions is quite small compared to what could be out there. Sure, mm-hmm. I, I agree, I agree. And would the, the, the mathematical prodigies, I mean, how would, how would your realism, would it say, well, listen, I mean, we have the ability to tap into the mathematical inquiry and these folks just happen to be, uh, you know, geniuses at it just like a, a, track, a track runner yeah. is. <laughs> yeah, they, is are how you- genius. they are geniuses at it. And their, I would say their abilities outrun ours more than the uh, top track people outrun us. Uh, right, right. Yeah, there's, there's, there's a lot more scope out there. Right. Uh, we haven't actually talked much about epistemology, about how we know mathematics, and that is, a, that is certainly a different question. So on the one hand, there's simple pattern recognition that mm-hmm. we can, uh, we're born able to distinguish between two and three and uh, an ability to kind of easily see symmetry. So I sometimes say that if you have a slightly asymmetrical face, don't go into politics because it shows up easily on TV, where Hmm. our sensory systems are quite very attuned to some of the mathematical structures of reality like symmetry and ratio. But our intellectual abilities to, to prove and to truly understand those things like the great people, great mathematicians do, but even the you know, average, what, what you or I can understand is really very far beyond animal abilities on, in an intellectual plane. That is, that is very surprising, but it's maybe a fact more about knowledge, about our extraordinary intellectual abilities that outrun animal ones than it is about mathematics as such. Right. I think that makes sense, right, when I'm doing... When I'm when I'm teaching my three-year-old math um, uh, versus you know basic mathematical things and counting versus doing differential equations, there's definitely levels of brain um, you know differentials, if you will, <laughs> mm-hmm. happening in those yep. two two happenstances. And um, I agree, and I, I think that's a it's interesting. That's a whole nother topic, right? Epistemology of of mathematical truths, moral truths. Um, let me, let me ask you, Jim, have you ever just chucked it all and said, you know, let's talk about the, the appeal of nominalism. Cause sometimes it's like, wait a minute, this is all too far out with all these ontologies. Let's just make this, let's just say we're just playing games in our mind. What's wrong with that, Jim? I can go out and look at symmetries in a table and understand what it's like. I can think in my mind, somebody asked me a question, uh, let's say, uh, how many rotations of a cube are there? Well, that's just something I can mentally manipulate a cube and sort of look at the different kinds. There's ones of 90 degrees and there's ones of 120 degrees that will bring, bring the cube back to the same position. Uh, there's, there's, there's just no way that's about uh, my thinking or my manipulating symbols. It's got nothing to do with symbols at all. It's about structural truths that I can 
understand that I can see. I've got really no temptation to nominalism, even though I do have a little bit of temptation to Platonism. Mm. Would you say there's, that's almost a Kantian perspective, nominalism of mathematics, that that's just the way we do things? That's just, you know, would, would you draw any parallel there, Jim, or is that a bad parallel to draw? That's just, that's creatures like us. This is a language we have. It's just, it's not uh, accurate, right? Yes, but it keeps proving to be accurate. Exactly. Uh, as you say, there's a, a Kantian perspective that's, that you wouldn't quite call nominalist, but according to the Kantian perspective, our mathematics is, uh, and according to him, our physics as well, is inborn in us. It's just our necess- necessary structure of how we organise experience. Well, uh, well, it isn't because uh, I can see that those truths about the rotations of the cube are about the rotations of the cube. They're not about my thinking about it, and I can check them by going and rotating the, the actual cube. Right. Yeah, I, I say, I, you know, every, you know, you may be a Kantian, but every time you get on an airplane and trust your life into the d- engineers and mathematicians mm-hmm. and physicists that have, that have empirically and mathematically validated things, it's tough to actually be a Kantian in that moment That's <laughs> as right. the plane yes. takes off, right? That's right. You're dragged back to reality there. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. So let me ask you, Jim, about in your book, because I know we covered a lot of the topics that, that are in your book was just an outstanding read, um, as well as your articles with, with ethics and mathematics. But what do we do for, the, for Aristotle's view for things that don't actually have reality, but uh, empirically, but we find mathematical reality too? What, what, what do we do with those things? I mean, how, how do we make sense of that? What, what things are you thinking of? So, so um, you know, things like infinity, for example, right? What, we, we, don't impis- we, we don't empirically know infinity, but we come across mathematical infinities. Or just any examples of, of, of things of mathematical reasoning that don't actually have um, findings yet in, in, in reality. Yes, we, we think, though, that they... Uh uh, show what reality uh, could be like, that uh, even if the electrons to count run out, the numbers to count new possible new electrons are not going to run out. Infinity, it's certainly it's a very tricky question to try and explain infinity. It seems that you do have an intellectual understanding that even if there aren't more things to count, you could always add one more. So mm-hmm. there's some modality about it. It's, it's about possibility. Uh, how we manage truths about possibility generally is uh, certainly rather a mystery because you can't see poss- you can't see possibility, uh, but well, you almost can. Let let me ask the listeners to think about this example. Suppose I have uh, six dots arranged in two rows of three. There's three on the top row, and under them three identical ones on the bottom row. So I have hmm. two by two threes. But if I now divide them up in columns, there's uh, three columns of two. I can see that those are the same. And in a sense, I've perceived or come very close to perceiving that two multiplied by three equals three multiplied by two, because they're just the same six objects arranged in two different ways. Uh, It's remarkable that you can have that kind of absolutely certain understanding just by looking or, or thinking about what you're seeing. And it's that kind of 
uh, understanding, intellectual understanding, whatever it is, that extend, it can extend indefinitely because you can see that it doesn't matter that you've got two and three, you could have uh, 100 rows of 50 and so that you can see that 100 by 50 equals 50 by 100 mm. because they're the same things and, and indefinitely. There's nothing preventing that going on absolutely to infinity. Mm. Uh, it's a certainly remarkable ability, but uh, you can see it happening. Hmm. So let me ask you. Uh, let me ask you this, Jim. Let, let, let's say there is a very strong reason um, at the high level to say, "Wait a minute." You know, maybe there is this 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 hylomorphic reality. It's not just matter, and it's not this divorced ontology of form separate from matter that Aristotle's onto something. Where do Aristotelians, you know, and maybe a high level here, start bickering on, on how to make sense of this, and especially maybe in the philosophy of mathematics? Where, where do you find your disagreements with other Aristotelian um, realists? Uh, there aren't uh, too many Aristotelian realists, I have to say, but <laughs> some, some, some so, well, uh, Robert Thomas, for example, the uh, editor of the Philosophica Mathematica, has a realist theory of mathematics that's in effect Aristotelian realism. He says that it's mathematics is really the study of relations as such. Mm. That's, uh, that, that's interesting, and uh, examples suggest it. I'm wondering if it's really just a rebadging of the suggestion that it's about structure. Structure is about parts and their interrelations and relations and interrelations, whereas uh, the theory of relations means you think of individual things and the relations between them. And the system, you think of math as sort of about systems or ecologies or networks, something like that. When it comes to the examples, I think there isn't too much difference, and it's largely a rebadging. Yeah, I, I should mention actually that uh, the original Aristotelian theory was that mathematics is the science of quantity. Uh, Aristotelianism was actually the uh, most uh, was the default uh, position in the philosophy of mathematics up to about the 18th century. Mm. So people like uh, Galileo and Newton uh, thought that, and the in in simple terms, the theory is that mathematics is the science of quantity. Quantity is divided into discrete quantity, as in arithmetic, and continuous quantity, as in uh, geometry and later calculus. And actually, that's not a bad theory of elementary mathematics. Most of what you study at school is about that kind of thing, quantity and uh, counting and measuring. But it's more the higher mathematics of the last 200 years that's mm. been more structural and talked about networks and uh, symmetry and things like that. Hmm. So, Jim, let me ask you about some other topics of interest. What um, you've intersected uh, ethics, you've intersected um, obviously your your um, Aristotelian realism. Any any other philosophical topics that have been of interest to you? Um, consciousness or free will, or any of the other big questions? Uh, I wish I could say something useful about those. I certainly <laughs> agree that consciousness is a very peculiar aspect of the world. So if you're thinking from the point of view of those materialist friends of yours mm -hmm. uh, that you were thinking of, they'll be saying um, science as we know it now has a complete story of the world, so we don't need to think about any uh, hylomorphic things or any god or so on. Uh, the two 
main gaps in that story, the things that are hard for them to explain, are on the one hand objective ethics and on the other hand consciousness. Mm. Uh, that's quite right to talk about the hard problem of consciousness, as my countryman uh, David Chalmers does. Mm. Uh, it was, thought, say, 50 or 100 years ago, people thought it's, we're nearly there. We're nearly there. Actually, hmm. A computer will be able to uh, appear to think um, anytime soon, but it hasn't worked like that. The more we've understood over the last 60, 70 years what thinking, cognition, consciousness are like, the more we understand how that artificial intelligence is not getting there. Mm. It's producing marvellous imitations of the effects and playing chess and go and so on. And it's even producing imitations of translation. But when there's, there's still an enormous gap, when you see Google translate, you translate from, say, Germany to English, it, it goes on and on and on and it looks good and you start thinking there's really something in there and then it makes a completely stupid mistake and you realise there's just no thinking in there. There's no hmm. conception of what the meaning is. And I think the artificial intelligence uh, debate and the results have sharpened very much the distinction between real conscious thinking and understanding on the one hand and uh, pattern recognition on the other. Yeah. You know, one thing, Jim, I was interested in my, uh, in my book with, with Adam, and then just, I, I watched this fascinating, um, conference called moving naturalism forward, where there were some great thinkers and they were struggling, uh, basically on, on, on really what to do with metaphysics and the big questions from the materialist view. And it's fascinating to me. I, I, I label it the metaphysical web where I've seen different thinkers pick and, and choose where they want to smuggle in ontology mm-hmm. and, uh, and others um, really just, but you know, I call it bite the bullet. Um, like Alex Rosenberg just says, Hey, there is no free will. There's no, you know, there is no ethics. These are all made up things. And I just wonder, he, Jim, think, he thinks he even Alex is great yeah. because he takes things to their logical conclusion. He, he does. Thinks <laughs> he thinks there are no per- persons. Right. Yeah. Right. And my, and my only issue with that is even as much as I sometimes is tempting to think about it, it ultimately to me makes the view incoherent if I have no free will to have that view and I'm not yeah. a person. And, um, right. and then the other side of it is where folks, um, and Sam Harris is the most fascinating to me that takes an objective realism, but denies free will, which to me is completely incoherent. How, how do you have objective, you know, how do you act objectively um, right or wrong when there's no choice in the matter. It's just really yeah. fascinating to me. <laughs> that is, that is uh, fascinating. I think almost the, it's if you think you're, there's no free will and you're determined by your atoms, you must also think that your opinions, your conclusions are determined the same way so that you're not really rational. You're just uh, causally uh, forced to believe what you do. Now, that's right. extremely hard to believe. I think it's harder to believe in that than to believe that you don't have free will, to think right. that your conclusions uh, don't follow from your reason, from your reasons from, they follow from uh, your, soft, your well, software and chemi- chemistry. Uh, that means you can't be rational at all, but we certainly observe that we're rational and do conclude things from reasons, especially when we're doing mathematics. Right. And that's what's interesting with this, uh, this idea of this metaphysical web is, I, you know, uh, the more I studied philosophy, you know, you, you almost, 
I forget where I read this, but you're almost what born a Cartesian, right? You're almost you're almost thinking of a separate soul body, and maybe you're even born a Platonist when you're sitting there doing math, and and then you have to stop and think about these big questions. And to me, Aristotle, when I look at ethics, free will, um, consciousness, there's 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 an empirical grounding, I think, in the way he handles the deep questions, but not a um, but and but also something that it doesn't result in the far outness of Platonism. Um, yes, that's right. Aristotle, which is why I'm attracted to it. Yeah, Aristotle always keeps his feet on the ground and keeps in mind the. The platitudes that uh, people un- that, that the ordinary person understands about things. So Aristotle is one of the few great philosophers that is not giving the ordinary person views that are completely crazy and out uh, contrary to what common sense thinks. Right. Right. Well, so Jim, what are you what are you working on now in terms of research? And then, uh, you know, maybe the first question would be, what what is the Sydney School um, for our listeners in the philosophy of mathematics? <laughs> uh, the Sydney School in the philosophy of mathematics is really a virtual reality hmm. that uh, a, a few I gathered a few friends to create a website to uh, well to promote our views that uh, on the Aristotelian realist philosophy of mathematics. So I have to say we've never met. So if anyone out there would like hmm. to organise our first conference, please do so. Hmm. And uh, so uh, of, yeah, your research area is now. Uh, what are you interested yeah, in? The main thing I've been working on very slowly is a book on the foundations of ethics, a little bit along the lines of what I was saying, that I think the found, I think first it has two takeaway messages. The first one is that the, basic notion in ethics should be the worth of persons and that mm. uh, that is what causes obligation. And the second one is that uh, ethics shouldn't be thought of fundamentally as about what to do mm-hmm. any more than mathematics should be thought of as how to add up numbers. It's about a, a, a deep reality and it's about what it is that makes humans and any other thing that has moral worth such as gods, uh, what makes them have that. Uh, preciousness or dignity mm. and hence uh, it follows from that you should treat them in a, in a respectful way. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to work on that. that. That is the main thing at the moment. Fantastic. And when do you think we'll get to uh, purchase your book, Jim? <laughs> uh, don't hold your breath. Okay. No, we know how that goes. Well, uh, Jim, I can't thank you enough giving us a tour um you know, through the the big questions of mathematics and uh, and your views and and really just nicely laying out, I think, um, you know, maybe the opposing views and how folks struggle with it and why you've, uh, like myself, been bullish uh, Aristotelian. And uh, we we hope to have you uh, again next time on the podcast. And thank you again for your time. Many thanks. Very enjoyable. My pleasure, Jim. Thank you again. Mm-hmm.